You are listening to the Enormo Cast. We all know that ice climbing is a miserable, cold endeavor, punctuated by small spikes of joy, mostly when it's over. But if you're planning on heading to the famous ice park in Uray, Colorado, to climb out your self-loathing, why not up the joy ratio by staying in the Wiesbaden Hotel and Spa? Imagine, after your third round of screaming barfies, you can retire to their vapor cave and soaking pool for a, quote, strange, dark, steamy underworld soaking experience. The Wiesbaden is affordable luxury in Ure. In fact, if you climb in Ure and don't stay there, you are totally blowing it. Discounts all winter. Go to wiesbadenhotsprings.com for more information. Once again, that's wiesbadenhotsprings.com. It's really the only way you'll find me ice climbing. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, yeah, it's big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it out. I'll see. You really should. What the hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget, you can go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Calus, coming to you from España, Cornadea near Sirana. Bienvenidos. Hola. Buenos dias. Local time is, uh, let me look out the window at the bell tower. Local time is about 4.45, and in a couple minutes, the bell is going to ring very loudly. And There you go. That's awesome. That happens all day, all the way till midnight. They do mercifully shut it off at midnight till seven o'clock. So get your sleeping done then. Anyway, staying at my friend's house right across from the bell tower. Lovely place. Just a little bit crazy making. Anyhow, where was I? Oh yeah. On today's show, I have a conversation with Stevie Haston, British mountaineer, rock climber, mixed climber, sport climber, alpine climber. He's done it all over his long and varied career. Famously cantankerous, but I caught him on a mellow morning. A um, little bit hungover, both of us, but uh, that's how it goes at the trade show. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Yeah, I'm here in Spain, having a good time, taking some time out on a rest day to post this thing up. I'm a little bit late, but not too late, considering I've been about five days off for about three months now. So in a weird way, I'm almost on time. And before we get to uh, the interview with Stevie Haston, 
little bit of news. I have indeed booked a live show for the Red Rock Rendezvous. I'm not sure what night, what time, or anything else. I will be sure to inform you as soon as we get that sorted out. I don't know the guests. But if you want more information about that festival, go to Red Rock's Rendezvous. No, Red Rock Rendezvous.com. Or Google it. You'll find it. Bunch of clinics, bunch of cool people going to be there. Big event. They've got their own site out in Red Rocks, kind of away from the city. Very beautiful place to be. So come check that out. March 27th to the 29th. And I will be there doing something from the stage. So what can I tell you about Spain? Not that much. The sport climbing here is amazing. Limestone, tufas, overhanging, all that sort of stuff. Huge, huge climbing areas. Old sport climbing areas. New sport climbing areas. It's actually insane. If you are a sport climber, you need to come to Spain. I suppose my only complaint is they don't seem to have a lot of knowledge about how to take care of your own shit. And by that, I mean your actual shit. Spanish crags, world famous, unfortunately, for lots of poop. I don't know what the deal is. They don't seem to have much of an infrastructure to take care of it. They don't seem to have an access fund, anyone else fighting for that uh, money that's going to go into those kind of infrastructure projects. But man, it's a bummer for the Spanish climbing community. Come on, worldwide, you're famous for this. Everybody I know who climbs in Spain has some interaction with human fecal matter that is quite unpleasant. So just shout out, you Spanish listeners. Call the Access Fund in the States. See how you guys can get it rolling. Because it's kind of embarrassing. All right, moving on. I think we'll just go straight to the uh, interview. Stevie Haston. Guy has a reputation, but it turns out that he's just a big, cuddly, bunny-loving teddy bear. With a wonderful accent and a lot of great stories. So let's get to it. My interview with Stevie Haston. know black diamond is a sponsor of the enorma cast they help the enorma love to flow freely into your ears which is fine with me because i've used black diamond equipment since i started climbing and we're talking back to the double axle camelots and hexes and things like that i'll say one thing that i truly believe in that the camelot c4 is the best cam ever made i'll go toe-to-toe with anybody on that one but did you know that they make apparel now too Men's apparel, women's apparel. What is apparel? Well, that's an industry word for clothes, jackets, pants, shorts, everything you need for climbing, everything you need for skiing. So if you love their gear, and I know you have some already, because if you're a climber, then you've got some BD gear, and go check out uh, what they're doing with the clothes over at blackdiamondequipment.com. So have a look and thank Black Diamond for sponsoring the Enormacast. levels are very low they're extremely low to be in america is interesting but to be low <laughs> this low is not so interesting <laughs> the king of the dwarfs i am the king of the dwarfs <laughs> cool okay we're gonna are you, you, you stoked you gotta yeah yeah i've got my coconut milk man okay we're gonna go ahead and get started so um i'm sitting in the roadway in at the 2015 winner OR with uh, Stevie Haston. Stevie. Hi. Hi, guys, as you say over here <laughs> in the former colonial thingamajig of UK, Britain. <laughs> um, 
Thanks for sitting down. It's a little bit of a rough morning. These OR shows can test a man. Test a man to his absolute limits, yes. <laughs> and uh, you've, you've been over here for a few days, so this is like day three or four. At day three or four. No climbing. No climbing. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of talking. Equipment. Equipment. Yeah. A little bit of booze. Tiny. Tiny bit. Minuscule right. amount of booze. So I appreciate you, you showing up on, on such a low moment. Um, I was really excited to have you in here. I don't in my catalog don't have a lot of British climbers and uh you're also a guy that for me, you know, I've I've I started climbing in the late eighties, well after you. Um but you you did a lot of stuff in the desert, which is a place that I love to climb and that was originally sort of put you on my radar as somebody like, wow, these you know, freeing the Titan and stuff like that, because I climbed that thing years ago. So the idea of someone free climbing that thing. And then the frickin' Sun Devil Chimney. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it was super insane. But um, I'm really glad to have you here. I read something where you had talked about that, you know, you felt like the British climbing in the scene in like the late 80s and early 90s was sort of, was when these British climbers were kind of the top climbers of the world. And that was kind of your era. What do you think it was about that scene that made it so sort of intense? And It's and, kind of, the climbing was great because life was so shitty. There was no work. You know, everyone was depressed. So climbing was what it should be, which is the other side of your life. Climbing should never be all your life. It should be the good part of your life. And, uh, you know, it's a rest from the kind of mundane stuff. But in those days, there was nothing. And But the climbing was brilliant. And the, the guys, we had a lot of good guys, you know. We were spoiled. And their head skills were... The head skills are as good as they ever got, I think. Probably, I don't, you probably won't want to hear this, but way better than the head skills that most climbers have got today. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't think that's a, that's a stretch. Maybe it's not an issue, yeah, if you think about it. People climb so much better, but do they really climb better than some of those guys? And even before that, you know, some of the great alpinists before that had immense head skills. Mm-hmm. What brought you into climbing? Was it something that you found when you were a little kid? It was absolutely, I think, I found when I was a little kid. I've just gone back to live on the island where I kind of half grew up. It's a small island. It's about 10 miles across, and it's just full of rocks and cliffs. And I don't know when it was, but I used to climb from a very early age with my grandfather, and it looks to me like there's been a tradition that stretches back millennium there. I think people were climbing there millenniums ago. They used to go down the cliffs for fishing and they used to go down to catch birds. That's my impression because I've found routes that go down vertical cliffs for hundreds of feet and they've been chipped by guys. You know, mm-hmm. you, you go down where there should be an in-cut, there is an in-cut. It's amazing. And like when I grew up, you know, as a child, I'd watch guys climbing down the cliffs in bare feet with like a bucket over the crook of their arm full of fish and, you know, a load of sacking and some traps. And, you know, some of these things are about, I guess, in America, they're 5'8". Mm-hmm. Maybe 5'9". I think I've done a few that are 5'9". I was gripped the other day doing one, to be honest. Went down this cliff on one of these little fisherman's routes. I was gripped out of my brain. So there you go. So that you think it's kind of in your... It might be, yeah. Yeah, like in your DNA. Yeah, kind of strangely enough. You know, I'm only half that crazy little, like, half my DNA is that crazy little place. Uh-huh. The other half is crazy 
Viking berserker kind of mentality. <laughs> you know. That's, which has, seems to have served you well. Yes, as an alpinist, it serves you rather well, yes. Yeah, as a right. sport climber, perhaps not. Right, right. So you talked about this, what, what did you call it? head skills. Yeah, head which skills. Which is, of course, the thing that... that I think British climbers in that era were known for, yeah. you know, pushing these these serious routes on the gritstone, and this like epicenter kind of Sheffield scene. Sheffield Centre was good. They yeah, were, they were kind of better than my my scene was the well scene. We were the like headmasters. Okay, they were like the tech masters, kind of slabby stuff. I was kind of just overhanging, very very loose, decomposing madness kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I had my own little skill set, if right. you like. So what what drew you to that? What do you think? Like, was it just a matter of opportunity? That was the cliffs around you, or uh, the cliffs in Wales are perhaps some of the best in the world. There's eight different kinds of rock within, you know, a radius of thirty miles, and they're very what they lack in size, they make up for in, you know, oddness. Very very good climbing, but no, I was a member of um, a great set of guys, and the the guy I'm an immediate. M- predecessors or you know our buddies the, the older guys they were great too so i'm very much i was climbing off the shoulders of my mates who are a little bit older than me and they all kind of added to this thing where we would go out and be bold and uh you know it wasn't like you know let's do something like very very techy it was all about being bold mm-hmm. in those days everything was 511 r Right. Everything was 5.11. I was brought up on 5.11R. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went to Eldo for the first time, it just felt like normal climbing to me. The R's and X's, it just, you know, it was absolutely no big deal for a British climber. Sure. In fact, some of the harder routes were done by Derek Hersey, who mm-hmm. is one of my mates, you know. Right. And Derek, although he's like a big shot here, Derek was like just one of a bunch of guys, you know, back home in... Good old blighty. Right. I, I, I was around in Fort Collins, and Derek used to come up and do slideshows and things like that. And, and you're right. It seems like, you know, he sort of was this alien that landed yeah, for in, you in Yanks, midst. For you Yanks, yeah. he was an alien. For us lot, he was just a bro, just you know. another guy. He was a bro, man. Uh-huh. So how long was it before you um, started looking away from just rock climbing and into alpinism? I was an alpinist when I was 15. Okay. And before I used to go ice climbing, you know, from a really early age. What 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 started you in that when you were fifteen? What it is an interesting thing because um, there's a guy called Dougal Haston, and he was like one of the best uh, alpinist kind of Himalayan climbers in Britain. And obviously, he's a Haston, and I'm a Haston. So I thought, well, you know, obviously, if that square head can do it, so can I. <laughs> and that's very much as as it went. And um. I don't know. That's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I went out, you know, I was soloing in, in the Alps when I was 15, 16, 16. Went first winter winter um, season, I was 16. There were guys who were more famous than me, you know, in the media who went out after I went out. I was like a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. I, um, I had kind of, not rubbish gear, but I had hardly any money. I used to kind of hitchhike there and just go climbing. And I didn't really care about anything apart from the climbing. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, again, you know, there's, now everybody like thinks it's a kind of, everything's established. In those days, we were establishing things, how to climb, what to climb with. And it was a very interesting game for me. Uh, you know, like the Jeff Lowe film, 
it kind of shows that he was very into how to climb and the to- the tools weren't just the tools he designed for instance they were the mental tools and the physical tools and i was very into that you know, i thought it was a very big game alpinism and so i was I was trying to design my body and des- you know use my head skills from rock climbing and uh, you know i really do like mountains so for me it was a genuine love affair mm-hmm. and you eventually moved to chamonix uh, yeah, I used to go there quite a lot, and um, then I got this, you know, lovely French girlfriend, and um, kind of went there to live for. I lived there for twenty years or so. Uh huh. That thing I just said about uh, Derek Hersey being the alien who landed amongst us. Very good. How, how very good point. Very good. Very, very good point. I was certainly the alien to those froggies. Yes, right. I was Mister Alien, persona non grata. That was for sure. Man, the fights I had with those buggers, I tell you. <laughs> Yeah, but you managed to hang around for twenty years there. Did they? Yeah, well, you know, they you they wanted they wanted to tell the world that they invented alpinism, and it was you know half the Brits, you know, it's people like you know Jeff, Jeff Lowe, and, you know, a couple of other people. History's written by the not just by the victors; it's written by the people who buy and publish books. Right. In this case, the Froggies. I'm not having that. <laughs> what about the Germans? What about the Austrians? Mm. You know, they were good too. Right. Who did the Eiger? Man, he weren't the French, was it? Right. So did you, I mean, did you finally find a place there without like, oh, causing problems for no, 20 years? No, never found a place. Uh-huh. I got mates, you know, French mates. Sure. Well, why wouldn't I? They're great climbers, you know. Right. But, um, you know, to kind of make your way, you know, you kind of have to pretend you're French. Like, you know, in, in America, I don't have to pretend I'm American. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll make room for me. You know, they accept me. Strangely enough, you know, like coming here, everybody really likes me. Which is surprising, but yeah, it makes me feel nice and welcome. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, awesome, you just man. haven't been here long enough. No, maybe I'm like adult and mad. <laughs> they actually do it? hate me. Who knows what's happened last night? Yeah. Have you been to the show yet? Maybe their security <laughs> won't let you in. They're gunning for me. Yeah. And I love it. I I love that history. You know, not just you, but a generation before you of these these working class guys from from Britain going to France, you know, the Don Willens and all these characters yeah. and, and definitely like climbing hard, but sort of raising hell. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, everybody was poor and it was bleak and that's kind of what sort of drove you guys. But you walk into this almost like arist- aristocratic kind of scene in a place like Chamonix where, oh, yeah. and, and, and sort of shake everything up. Well, you know, they have style, you know, Brits don't have style. We're just good, you know? Right. So there's a clash between good and style uh-huh. or like, you know, you could call it pretentiousness, you know, they adore the mountains and all this crap, you know, whereas, you know, us Brits, we kind of fight the mountains. Right. You know, it's not a question of conquering in either case, but, you know, it's, a, it's you know, like a lot of climbing today now is very pretentious. Obviously, it's not the same as it was in the 80s and 90s. And I'm not doing anybody a disservice because a lot of people climb in the same old way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's very much um, lots of nice shiny gear nowadays and stuff like that. Right. You know, gear never stopped me. Right. Do you know what I mean? No, what do you mean? What I mean is, you know, I just go climbing, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't work for 10 years or so, you know, I just went climbing. Maybe maybe it's 20 years, maybe it's 30 years, never worked, I don't know. Man, who wants to go to work, you know? <laughs> well, how did you how did you manage that? Well, I was, I was kind of lucky in some respects because I was fairly good and, you know, you know, along the way people were very nice to me. Mm-hmm. You know, people are still quite nice to me, though. People are more fortunate. They kind of like sort me out every now and then. 
Okay. Yeah. I used to get a load of money for sponsorship, but I'd rather be poor and still go climbing. Right. Or, you know, obviously, be rich, man. What for? Mm-hmm. So you've got no time. Right. To do anything. Yeah, that's true. I've got loads of time. It's kind of working through the working through the steps. You were in Chamonix for 20 years. Um, in that era, again, you were sort of setting standards in terms of boldness. Yeah, that was good, actually, when I think back on it. Because, you know, I'm old, I forget about things. But I had these, uh, you know, I, well, I assume, and people have told me I was fairly bold and had head skills. And um, and there was this wonderful opportunity in Sham and the Alps in general to do ice climbing. And it was very much in the old era. The froggies had kind of missed the boat. They didn't really understand the new gear. Well, the new gear was kind of getting, being invented also by people like me. And uh, the waterfalls were there. There was a there was a slight gap between fitness and uh, the equipment and what was still available to climb. You know, there was grade seven ice to climb, and uh, you know you had to be a little bit bold. So there I was, you know, and uh, I did it. You know, I kind of like did the first grade sevens and stuff, mm-hmm. and I found it very very exciting. You know, it, it was my bag, and I was like, I was well into it. And I used to like soloing as well, so that's a pretty cool thing, you know. Right. Makes you feel alive until you die, of course, and right. then you feel dead. But <laughs> you feel alive right at the last second, though. Yeah, I would imagine. Very. You very feel, probably feel more alive just before it all goes. Right. Beep. So one of the the essence that you talk about is being one of your proudest moments, and I think it, it sort of jumps out as the is. Um, soloing the Walker Spur in wintertime. Oh, yeah, man, it was great, yeah. Can you tell me about that? I mean, it definitely is, uh, you know, when when I read things about your career, that, like I said, you yourself talk about it as this moment where maybe there was a coming together of that fitness and those skills and that moment that you had to attempt something like that. And I, I'll be honest with you, my whole climbing life, I've heard about routes like the Walker Spur, but I don't, I'm not much of an alpinist. What, does something like that even entail? Are we talking about ice climbing? Are we talking about mixed kind of climbing? What does it even look like? Well, the Walker Spur is just so beautiful that it will take your breath away. That's first thing. So it's, you know, like a gorgeous woman. You know, it's just incredible. You can see it from Sham, from the Murder Glass, miles and miles away. And um, it's in all the history books. It was done in the big year, 1938. And in summer, it's for someone who's really good, it's, very nice solo, you know, for someone like me or people like me, you know, it's kind of, it's a lovely little day solo. It's a thousand meters high. Well, it's 1,200 meters high, I guess. Who put it up uh, originally? Cassing. Okay. And two other guys. And, you know, they had a good time and they were bold boys. You know, they kind of came over from Italy and grabbed it. You know, they beat the froggies and um, the route's there, you know. And then because it, in summer it's primarily rock, you know, if you're not too fine of a bit of snow and glacial approach, you can solo it in a few hours. It, one of my mates had done the very second solo of, you know, solo of it. A, a very close drinking buddy of mine called Minx. And uh, he was beaten to the first solo of it by like a day or something. So, of, of course, I was going to solo it. But um, I never got round to it. And then I had an argument with this girl I was going out with. And I thought, bugger this, I'm off to do a bit. So I went and soloed it. And I wasn't even fit at the time. And it was lovely. You know, instead of arguing with this bird, I was, you know, on this wonderful spur, 
pierce in the clouds and it was you know it's just like five ten a bit of five ten rock climbing you know mainly easier bit loose sometimes but great and then the real thing about the walker's boat is it changes character completely in the winter and gets clad in this horrible kind of verglas and it doesn't look so friendly anymore when i went to live there it was like well you know one day i'm going to solo this and uh, uh, loads of my froggy mates, they wanted to solo it too. So there was a bunch of good guys, you know, in the early 80s, really fit blokes. But to be honest, everybody was really frightened of soloing this thing in winter. And um, one of my other mates, who was my girlfriend's previous boyfriend, a guy called Andy Parkin, he soloed it in winter. But he used a bit of aid. And uh, I really look up to Andy. And... Um, he used bit of aid, and I thought, well, you know, I could do it with aid, but I'd rather not do it with aid, you know, I'd rather do it free. So the, th- the whole match was there, the whole match was there, but do you really want to take on something that hard that you know where you might, you know, you know, to be honest, you just die if you kind of screw it up. And there's a bit of mathematics involved, because if you want to solo it, you have to carry nothing. And this is another kind of like... You don't really want to think about it because in the end, I took nothing. I took um, I took no food, no water, nothing really. And I had this tiny kind of 300-gram sleeping bag that couldn't have kept you, couldn't keep you warm in, in this hotel. <laughs> and, um, you know, so when I got on the thing, you know, although I'm like, I knew I was taking a big risk. As soon as I like, Go up a little bit and the cold set in. I knew that I better get up it because, you know, otherwise I'm not going to get back home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I blew it a little bit because it was a bit windy and uh, I didn't really have a windproof. And uh, it was so windy, I was too cold to climb. So I had to pack it in about, you know, almost up just after I'd started. I was late up to it in the beginning and then I only had a few hours before it got so windy I had to like curl up on a ledge. And then shiver away. And then in the morning, I just ran for the summit because I knew that was it. I better get the hell out of there. And so I probably did it in about six hours of climbing, even in mm-hmm. winter altogether. Mm-hmm. But it was separated by a bit of a a kind of frosty night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I look back to that day and think it's still one of my best things. Because in winter, it's, you know, it's it's M6 kind of climbing. It's like 510, but with, you know, bits of ice on it. So when you're climbing, okay, so you're soloing. We're not talking about rope soloing. You're soloing. soloing. You're soloing, soloing, yeah. yeah. And when you're climbing that kind of terrain in that, are you like trying to rock climb with gloves on? Are you like using your picks like mixed climbing? Are you like straight up rock climbing? You know, when the rock was clear, I was using bare hands. It's pretty cold. So you have to, you know, have conditioned hands. Um, Some of the time I was using my picks, you know, I was very good at mixed climbing. So, but it's a combination of all these skills. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's where I was going at the time with my climbing. And, um, you know, it's kind of, it gives you an opportunity to either freak out or actually get your shit together because, mm-hmm. you know, 1,000 meters underneath your ass does do that for you. Sure. You know, yeah. concentrates Clearly. the mind, yeah. And uh, I loved it. Right. And then I got to the summit and um, there's a bit of sun at the top and then I just ran down this glacier and just, like, I knew I was free, man. I was right. Really, and I was also free from this uh, chain I put around my neck because that's what it was. I had to do this thing. 
yeah mm-hmm. and then i felt that i could like relax for the rest of my life because i'd done it i'd become what i've always wanted to be which was this kind of little romantic kind of alpinist guy well i mean like a final exam yeah yeah that was it i don't have to do anything else right don't, you know that's it man that's the end of it yeah but you did you kept doing things well, yeah. <laughs> that's because i'm an idiot <laughs> Well, I'm glad you did. Actually, I mean, it wasn't the end. It was you didn't hang up your tools and and call it a day. But yeah, but I didn't do much like that afterwards. Right. Yeah, because there's a bit of an issue, you see, because um, there's this thing called media and like making money. And there were two other people who soloed it that year, pretty famous people, and obviously they're French, so they get a lot of the media attention. And I did the best ascent. I mean, I'm, there's no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. But I got like no lines in the French press. I got mm-hmm. two. I think I got a sentence in the English magazine. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, fucking bugger this, man. This is shite, isn't it? Right. And it's still like that with the media and climbing. Unless you, if you're not backed by the good sponsors, you don't get the press. Right. And, you know, I mean, people say I'm like a twat and all this, but I'm not. You know, I stick up for people who are good, regardless of whether they've got sponsors or not. Right. So, you know, sometimes it all gets in the way, that kind of thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also a matter of, you know, were you willing to come down and and, yeah, suck, uh, and talk about it all? Suck and, cucumber. <laughs> I certainly wasn't prepared to suck any kind yeah, of cucumber. Yeah, but, you know, it's like th- th- there is that, that balance of, you know, I would imagine your idea of, of the perfect descent, in addition to have done in, without a rope and in winter and everything else, is that you come down and you don't run around – you, well, know, you shouldn't have me, to brag. Me, look what I did. Look what I did. Look yeah, what I you did. shouldn't have to brag things too yeah, much. You but, know. But, to, but I think that's, as we know, part of the necessary machine. If oh, I don't, I don't think it should be necessary. Right. Plus, you know, editors should actually know what they're doing. Sure. And most editors haven't sure. got a clue. You know, uh-huh. and um, and then they should make an effort to seek out people and maybe talk to them. Certainly. You know, like there's there's always a bunch of rock climbers. You know, like Salt Lake, for instance. Salt Lake's got a load of climbers. The media can hardly ever knows about them, does it? Mm-hmm. Because you know they're either half Mormon or whatever, and they're quite quite folk. Mm-hmm. So all you hear about are the Californians and the Boulderites and people like that. Sure, it's always the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, so you you said you were in Chamonix for twenty years. Where in that did this fall? Was what? it you're the you're climbing of the Walker Spur? I can't remember, man. I can hardly remember anything. I think it was about ninety three. Mm-hmm. Ninety three. You know, I've been concentrating on. You know, cascades, you know, frozen waterfalls. So that was nice. And I got into snowboarding heavily as well. Okay. Around that time. Okay. And, um, you know, I used to climb with my girlfriend a lot. But I did, you know, my girlfriend was trying to like stop me soloing. And so that was, you know, there was lots of things going on. But I can't normally prefer something easier because, you know, it's like an easier time. You're a bit more relaxed. But the walker was. Big deal for me. Well, and so, you know, you said you you were kind of running down the glacier and you were super stoked. Oh, yeah, super stoked, man. But did that last or was there a kind of, I mean, did you find yourself afterwards like, all right, well, now what? What am I going to do now to sort of, or, or, or were you really able to be like, you know, this thing is going to sustain me for a while? I was hoping it would sustain me for years. What happened is, because, um, you know, I've done a load of things like that before, but. You know, you can, sometimes you even get depressed, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's, it, I guess, what I'm asking about. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think a few weeks later, I was in I was in Waco Tanks, actually, strangely enough, and uh, with um, a frostbitten 
feet mm. you know because one of my one of my feet was a bit frostbitten on that ascent because again i had to you know wear really light boots mm-hmm. the, the technology of those days hadn't really caught up with the possibilities so i'm i'm at waco you know trying to do you know left murray and all that you know i can't even get a pair of shoes on properly and i was kind of whinging a bit then thinking about it because you know like you could i could have lost my foot could have lost my toes could have lost my fingers and yeah, you know, I, I really enjoy being at Quaker and just bouldering around. Mm-hmm. So the balance of these kind of desires is a bit odd sometimes. You know, alpinism isn't for everybody, is it? You know, it's kind of, it's nicer sometimes to just do mellow stuff like bouldering. Mm-hmm. But, so I got a bit depressed. At, uh, I was there with Patrick Edlonge, actually, thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, I saw, yeah. I saw a picture of it. Yeah, actually. so, you know, Patrick. You like, spot and Patrick. Yeah, you know, me and Patrick kind of like, got on a bit. Because, you know, he was the same as me. He used to get fed up with everything. And um, But the sun's shining. It's Waco. Rock's good. So it's okay in the end, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But, you know, while they were bouldering, you know, like, you know, I was kind of like, I'd close my eyes and just think about, you know, being on the top of the Walker Spur. And it is... It is something special. It's not like boulder. Boulder's not like an ego thing a lot of the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, being on top of a mountain, for me, maybe it's the ego thing for other people, it's more like a religious thing, you know? So, you know, there's big things, there's little things, you know, there's deep emotional things and physical things. Uh-huh. But the walker was a big thing for me. Yeah, certainly. Well, I'm glad you talked about it a yeah. little bit. Nice memory. So... You're also sort of involved in this, uh, the original kind of mixed climbing, um, super steep, uh, advanced sort of tools on rock kind of climbing. How did that come about? Well, that came about because, uh, although it doesn't look like it, that kind of climbing probably first started in Britain. It's uh, people like Joe Brown, one of my predecessors in North Wales. Joe was really good at it from years ago. Don Williams was really good at it from years ago. It doesn't kind of look like that way in the history books. It looks like Jeff Lowe invented it, you know, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's not the truth. They've been doing it in Britain for, you know, over 100 well, years. Well, I mean, essentially, isn't so much of that Scottish climbing? It's like all scraping it's all around mixed, on that exactly. sort of thing? Yeah, it's all. In fact, that's what I used to call it. I used to call it scraping. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, strangely enough, it's not the, you know, the kind of stuff I really like the most. It isn't. But uh, a lot of waterfalls, they when they start getting really really good and technical, they also become extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. And our, the ice screws at the time weren't really that great, so it's kind of nicer or more physically challenging to you know do something else like a little overhang and maybe hit hit an icicle, which Jeff clearly showed in his first ascent of Octopussy, mm-hmm. which was a brilliant thing. Yeah, up in Vale. Yeah, and, uh, Jeff. You know, Jeff became a, a buddy of mine and. And Jeff's also it kind of got a different character than me. You know, he's like calmer, he's more meticulous, this kind of stuff. And a lot, you need a little bit of that to kind of try and develop where you're going with mixed. And because uh, I'm more of a kind of like just thug my way up the goddamn thing, you know, kind of person. But, you know, I'm quite good at designing tools. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at least Jeff had the vision to see there where it could go. Yeah, I wasn't really clear about where it would go, and uh, Jeff was a bit clearer in his mind. And, um, of course, there's always bits of rock between icicles, and so it's quite logical to be able to climb these things. You know, a lot of people who criticise mix, you know, they don't get it. Well, you know, it's a journey up a piece of mountain or a 
face. Mm-hmm. You've got to do it. And it's nice to have a few rules and, you know, do it free. Right. And these new these new ice axes and things, these mixed axes, and just make it a lot better and much more physically challenging mm-hmm. than, say, vertical or even inclined ice. Right. And look at it now. It's a big sport, you know. It's almost a sport by itself. But you didn't end up sticking with it too long, or are you still still into it? Uh, I kind of like, oh, I mean, I think I did like up to M12 and stuff. I was on something M- M10s, and then the gear started getting really good, and everybody was arguing about the rules, you know, mm-hmm. heel spurs this, it's just got pain in the ass. And then, um, then they wouldn't pay me to do it, so I thought, bugger this. I'm just not doing it. I'll just go rock climbing. Right. Yeah. You know, part of my job is helping with design, testing product, but... At the end of the day, I'm a sportsman. If they don't want to pay, I just won't do it. Mm-hmm. Simple. Right. I'm a simple kind of chap. <laughs> well, based on, again, stuff I've read, and even stuff you've already said here today, like sport climbing for you is maybe not the most admirable of pursuits, and yet you've pursued it at a really high level. So where does that sort of fit into your the way you climb and, and the things that you pursue? And, and another thing that you're also known for now, at least – in the last few years is is your training blog which is a lot of fun and, and anybody out there should check it out and uh you've obviously trained yourself into being able to climb really hard even just a few years ago climbing a i don't know what it is in french grades but 14d in, in american grades so where does that fit in and, and how is it that you can motivate yourself for that you know versus something a big mountain or whatnot um well you know, the, the, the danger of aspects of, like, alpinism and icicle climbing is, you know, it's a little bit of a heavy game. So it's quite nice to, you know, relax, say, and go bouldering. And um, although, you know, for me, it's hard to find good boulders, really. You know, Waco, the quality of Waco, Little Cotton Canyon, all that. It's hard to get stuff that good. So, But it's easy to get really good sport climbs. Yeah, especially in Europe. Yeah. I mean, in Europe, we're chock-a-block full of them, you know. Yeah. And the island where I live has got, you know, infinite number of like great you know routes and big big overhangs i love big overhangs so and um bolts don't actually have to be one meter apart they can be four meters apart and at the end of a 55 60 meter pitch that means you're going to take 40 50 footers anyway which is quite exciting right you know 50 footers are 50 footers man so that's sport climbing for me it's not necessarily like five bolts up a little grotty overhang mm-hmm. like in the hell cave for instance you know, I'm not demeaning it, but um, it's also Sayers. You know, it's classic, fantastic blue streaks, orange streaks, up beautiful limestone. Yeah, it's Maple Canyon. You know, it's like another little game, you know. And you get, you know, you kind of have to, like, be on the job to get really good. You have, I had to get better, actually. I had to get fundamentally better at climbing. And I had to tweak, you know, my training. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I used to get away with, you know, just partying all the time. Partying is not going to get you up a real 9A, you know. It's like you have to even, you know, you have to obey certain stringent kind of things. You know, you can't eat pizza and beer and, like, go out partying all the time. You know, you have to be a little bit of a good boy, you know. Uh-huh. And so I was a good boy and, you know, I enjoyed the process. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about doing it again at the moment because I want to, like, a bit of discipline. And well, what, 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 what were the circumstances? I mean, let's say leading up to... Uh, what was the 9A? What's the name of it? I did Hugh. Right. It's That's a Fred Rowling route. Right. And I did, the first one I did was my own one, which was a link of an 8C plus. 
into an AA plus, mm-hmm. which is called um, Descent Alolita. Okay, and that's really good. And, right, and I've done I've done three or four nines. Okay, so, so what 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 kind of circumstances did you put yourself in to be? Uh, to sort of ignore this other part of your nature, this mm. one that wants to party and wants to, like we just said, pull yourself, you know, drink all night and climb hard all day. Like, yeah, I guess I just set myself a challenge, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, like for the walker, I used to go running and stuff. And, you know, I was fairly clean for a bit, you know, like for two or three months, I was like, good boy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I like, I like, you know, being in the mountains and being clean. And then, you know, you come down, sometimes temptation's too much, you want to go out partying a bit. Even now, you know, at my advanced age, I still occasionally want to go out partying. And um, but to do a nine eight, you know, you have to be, you have to trim down your weight. That's probably the hardest part for me is trimming down my weight. Mm-hmm. You know, loads of people they're good at climbing. They think, well, you know, it's possible for them to do nine eight. Actually, it isn't really. You know, it's quite a, it's quite a good tick. You know, I used to think not very much of it, and then all of a sudden, once you start trying to do it. You realise it ain't that easy, mm-hmm. and uh, I found that a bit of a shock, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, it really pissed me off that I couldn't do one for ages, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a, a guy. I don't know if you know Bill Ramsey from. Yeah, Vegas. I know Bill really yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, and he he has that other he has that other part of his nature as well that yeah. the temptation and um, one thing he said to me that was really enlightening as. Uh, someone who sports climbs, but I don't really, I don't have the stamina or the the solid mind to be able to really try a route a lot of times and, and get after it. And, you know, a lot of people look at trying something over and over again and, and they'll say something stupid like, well, if I tried it that many times, I'd be able to do it too. Ooh, ooh, yeah. But Bill pointed out like, but that's the difference is that you don't have the sort that of stubbornness tenacity. and the tenacity to try it a bunch of times. And yeah. that's, that's the difference. So, I mean, sounding like maybe you ran into that same thing of having to, to really bear down and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep trying this thing. It's, there's a lot of what Bill says, you know, uh, Bill's got loads of skills, but he definitely has that skill, that tenacity to keep trying stuff. So f- for me, it was a lot harder. It's like, you know, in the end you think, why, why bother, you know? But, the challenge is not to let the root break you. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the challenge. And that's like, that's a head skill all all by itself. Right. You know, some of these guys who are on like very, very long projects, they've got some kind of, you know, thing going there. You know, look at Dawn Wall just recently. That shows some tenacity. It's yeah, not, some, yeah. It's not like just a skill thing. That's a tenacity thing. Mm-hmm. And um Obviously, you know, Tommy's got, like, a lot of good skills anyway. But, you know, look at the other lad, Jorgensen. You know, it's not his normal thing. And there he is. He's gets his head down and he worked hard and they've both got it. You know, nice one. Yeah, well, I, I, that's – it's an interesting part of that story is that, you know, Tommy kind of was the guy that driving the engine for the whole project. But, you know, it's way more natural that he did it. And I think – Kevin's sort of playing second fiddle in the grand story that's blown up all over yeah. the world. But if you look at what he achieved, the distance he went. His distance is further than Tomish, for sure. I mean, yeah. the, the, he was just a flat out boulder. Yeah. And and then he just, now he just did like the longest, you know, one of the longest, hardest routes in the world. Mm. So, you know, may, maybe as climbers, we're going to sort of be able to see that. That's never something that'll translate to any sort of mainstream thing. No, we, more mainstream, no mainstream climbers are. 
and it's not. It's like oil, oil and water, isn't right, it? Right, right. I mean, it's bad enough climber to climber, but mainstream to climbing is impossible. Yeah. We're two different worlds, two different societies almost. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it still is this subculture for sure. It's a subculture mm-hmm. with a set of, you know, perhaps nicer people, to be quite frank. Right. Climbers, you know, they're not the greatest people in the world, but, you know, they're all right. You know? Right. You know, climbers, I don't think, would go to war, you know. Sure. No. You know, they want to go climbing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How did you end up in this little tiny island in Malta? Uh, I went to school there a couple of years. You know, my mum's Maltese. Mm-hmm. My dad, you know, a Scottish nutty kind of bloke. And then um, they were poor, so I went there, you know, while they were working so they could, like, get some money together. And, um, yeah, I learned Maltese and, you know, I always had a love for it. And in those days, there wasn't much building there. I couldn't get into any trouble, you know, I could like run around, I had the cliffs to myself, you know, the sea was full of fish, you know, it was brittle, you know, it was really right. good. And then I go back to London, school was horrible, you know, it's all dark and miserable, you know, you can get into trouble anytime you want, you know, really easily in London. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't like it so much. So eventually, you know, I went back and to go, go to this tiny little island and started climbing. Took my girlfriend there and stuff and mm-hmm. went climbing and you know, re liked it, as it were. And now, when I look at it, what I've done now, you know, I've done a couple of hundred routes there, sport routes. It's great, you know. It's actually achieved something again, you know. Right. We did the, we did the guidebook recently, and you know, foreign visitors come. You know, they do. You know, so it's good for tourism. It's good for a couple of my mates who go guiding there. You know, do you know what I mean? We've made something. Sure. And it's on the on the kind of world circuit as a place to go for climbing. So, uh-huh. yeah, I kind of feel a tiny bit proud, you know. Yeah. So, do you ever, at the same time, you know, the the whole guidebook debate, the whole opening this this place up to you know from where you had it to yourself to a bunch mm. of bunch of people coming is? Do you have any sort of you know now the the cons you mean like the the bad bits yeah the, of like oh whoops yeah everybody's here at my cliff now you yeah there well you know yeah i have to go i have to fill bags full of litter because these climbers you know are horrible yeah i <laughs> I found 15 butts on one of my like you know at the bottom of one of my roots you know right. clearly the guy is a climber he he left 15 cigarette butts so i pick him up and i go and give them to him <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. The guy was so thick, he kind of, you know, lost his phone in the route as well. You know, he dropped his, like, what they call portable phone things. Mm-hmm. It disappeared down his crack. Oh. I thought, great, the rocks kicked, you know, bit back. Right. He stole his phone. Yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. So there are some cons, but, you know, generally it's nice to see, say, you get a foreign visitor, German. Mm-hmm. They live up in the cold. They come down. They enjoy my roots. They're smiling. Right. And that that's really, yeah, makes me really happy. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, cool. Well, actually, that, that actually brings me to another question. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, I sort of joked about like having your reputation and a little nervous, like <laughs> to, to to like get in your grill about all this sort of stuff, you know. And you had that reputation uh, for years, and I think it was sort of again like this this British reputation as well. This sort of working class coming in, and and you even said like you were a guy who just bashed his way up roots yeah and yet when i read your blog and i just hear what you say now we've got this i think this slightly different person to a certain extent maybe i'm like too much conjecture here but you seem to be quite a bit more open to like these people coming and climbing on your roots and your blog is very much uh about like 
talking to people about trying to you know overcome these these worst parts of your of your uh, worst you know, laziness. Everybody's nature, yeah. yeah. So what what does that evolution look like to you? Have you noticed it, or, or are you just no, a little I, older and wiser? Or no, you? I'm not older and wiser, and I haven't become mellower. <laughs> it's just I think people understand me a little bit more. You know, is that it? Yeah, they don't immediately. You know. It's almost like a racism thing, you know. It's like he's from the UK, you know. Right. He's scruffy, dirtbag, you know. Sure. Working class. I'm not, you know. I'm the same as everyone. I got a good, good side, bad side, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I'm fairly, fairly frank person. Mm-hmm. So I speak my mind, and over the last thirty years, people speak their mind less and less and less, and you don't even know what they're saying most of the time or sure. what they're thinking. Right. And I'm the same. You know, the, the little island where I, I live, you know, everybody's really frank. Uh-huh. They, you know, what what they say is what you get kind of thing. And uh, the part of France where I was living in the end in the Pyrenees, it was the same. You know, people actually, they do what they say. They keep their promises and stuff like that, and they're hardworking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I haven't changed. You're misunderstood. I'm a misunderstood man, yes. <laughs> people have always been wrong and horrible to me. Right on. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you a little bit about. You just said you wanted to uh, get in shape. You've got some new goals. I know you've talked about them on your blog as well. Um, you've fallen off a little bit here in the last couple of days, but uh, falling off the wagon, man. Yeah, you got to get back in, yeah. back on your tiny island, so yeah. you can in my be monastery. left alone. So, what does that look like? What are you What are you gunning for? Well, you know, I'm going to earn a bit of money, do the um, trade show in uh, Europe, go home. Uh, Kind of, I've got to lose about 12 pounds and I've got to do some systematic training. Mm-hmm. Then I've got to like butt my head up against those roots. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to do what Bill Ramsey and, you know, everyone does. Right. You have to butt your head up against those roots and not let those roots break you because they're mean. Your roots in Malta. Yeah, I've got some projects there. I've got like a, there's a couple of nines there and I might even go back to France and try a kind of like a 9A plus there that. You know, well, probably won't because, you know, it's too hard, man. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And um, I'm getting a little bit old, so I kind of want to be good again. Sure. I want to, like, strut my stuff. I want to, like, you know, swagger. I want to swank around and pull down on those little monos and get to that goddamn chain. You know? How old are you? I'm uh, 4,450 <laughs> years old. <laughs> Yeah, Give or take. Personal question, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm as young as you want me to okay, be. Okay, excellent, excellent. Now I'm like 58, I think. Or... You've got some. You got some rabbits to tend to as well. I got I'm one rabbit know. now. One. <laughs> tell me about. You told me this story about finding your rabbit the other I found day. Found a rabbit at the bottom of one of my projects the other day. A blue rabbit, you know. And um, he's looking at me, and I thought, well, he's going to get eaten by a dog, you know, because I'm a kind of like veggie vegan kind of guy, so I didn't want this rabbit to get eaten, so I took the rabbit home. And uh, but I don't want. You know, I used to have like hundreds and hundreds of rabbits. I don't want hundreds and hundreds of rabbits again. And I want to simplify my life so I can get to the chain on some of my projects. I don't want rabbits. Right. Yeah. But you got one. I got as one. As long as you keep him by himself or That's her right. by himself. Yeah. You're... Immaculate conception. Yeah. I'm frightened of. You know. Yeah. Well. Very religious island I live on. <laughs> you know. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but there was another rabbit. But I'm trying not to catch that one. Right. So I mean, you heard it here first. Stevie Hassan is is a, a veganish ra- rabbit lover. Yeah, protector. It's just so you know. Yeah, you see that yeah, doesn't exactly. go with the stereotype. No, that doesn't, it doesn't go with the old weird stories they tell about me. <laughs> Excellent. 
All right, so looking sort of back on on your history, you know, and coming up in, in the British climbing, the British climbing really influenced, I, I always say, influenced American climbing. Oh, for sure, you yeah. You know, we, we, we took our, there was the continent and there was you guys, and we definitely took our original, you know, Yosemite styles and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, knots and all that, and I yeah, came from Britain. From yeah. Britain, yeah. versus what's gone on the continent and then later on we've we've got this sport climbing thing yeah. so a big debate in climbing always has been and and continues to be this this idea is there's still sort of room for adventure mm-hmm. in climbing and uh so w- what's kind of your opinion on the on this state of things i mean is there still like room for the kind of adventure that you felt when you were starting and climbing in some of those loose crazy places there is room for you know all we have to do is like return to the source, which is the adventure part. You know, mm-hmm. we've got all of these, well, not me particularly, but there are all these new high level skills that people have got. You know, people can mix climb up to M14. Uh, there's quite a few people who can actually climb real grade seven ice, you know, not just the thing you see in the mags, but real grade seven ice. There are people who are really fit, particularly continentals. Then there's airfares, you know, a man like that or a woman like that with all those skills, give them some money, they can go to the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Himalayan climbing is, uh, it it hasn't even reached the standard that it reached 30 years ago. Right. It's nonsense. You know, it's all media hype. It's just rubbish. You know, and our skill levels are just way, way above the rubbish to the media and the climbers are feeding us now. There's stuff in the Himalayas that is just twice twice the length of the walker. There's things like, you know, Jeff Lowe tried, you know, like the North Ridge of Latok. You know, it hasn't even been done now. I mean, Jeff Lowe was trying it, I don't know, 30 years ago or something. Sure. Hasn't been done to this day with the level of skills that a climber's got. You know, where's the guy who solos that spur? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're not there, man. And um, we could be there because the guys, are, guys and girls are fitter, stronger, and better at it. And the equipment is brilliant. I mean, like... Look at the gear now. The gear is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so it's a question of someone has to go and do it. And But people aren't really willing to take up the risks and um, you know, they're more interested in their SUVs and uh, you know, their bank accounts and all right. that kind of stuff. It's like me, you know, I was into snowboarding. I went to the Himalayas and snowboarded some mountains. It cost me a load of money. But you know, what I should have done was just stay there. I should have just like shacked up with some woman there, you know, a little hut, kept my snowboarders in the corner, done a bit of like, you know, trekking, had a little restaurant and just snowboarded another 50, you know, beautiful mountains. Mm-hmm. That's what I should have done. Right. I should have just stayed there. You know, where are these like weirdos that we used to have, you know, who just, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is there some guy who lives in the Himalayas and all he does is like slash his way down those beautiful mountains? No, there isn't. Yeah. Who's the guy, you know, like seven years in Tibet? Yeah. There's no like guy who does seven years in Tibet anymore, is it? It's like seven days in Waco tanks is about all we do nowadays. Right. Yeah. So is there, you you think it's something about the way climbing's going or do you just think it's this society thing and this comfort level and. Yeah. It's a society thing. Yeah. So what you just said, I mean, about, you know, 30 years ago, we've got climbing standards in the Himalayas that are higher than today. And there's like this this progression upward that we saw. I mean, we had expedition climbing and then those got smaller and smaller mm. 
not everybody, but there was a group of people like yeah. Alex Lowe. I mean, well, even Alex Lowe, but Jeff Lowe and yeah, Alex, Alex was good too. You know, and even all, all the you know all those British guys like yeah. Tasker and Borman. All, all my mates, guys. all my mates who are dead. Yeah, like Al Rouse and all those people who are dead who right. died in the mountains. Yeah. And it seems like now, it's suddenly, I mean, we've come like it, it slowed down, and and there's people still doing it, but it's not as prominent. And do you think it's like a just a comfort thing? I mean, looking at like the Eastern Bloc guys that were yeah, had such hard lives at home and then they would go into the mountains and just crush it. Yeah, well, it's because, you know, being in, down a coal mine is a lot harder than being on the North Face, to right. be quite frank. Right. You know, these guys used to party and then fall asleep in the cold, in the rain. Right. So what's the North Face to them? But, you know, now our lives are so soft and we are so soft. Mm-hmm. You know, heated seats in your car. I mean, give me a break. You know, what is that? You know, you go into a toilet, toilet, bathroom, you know, you have a bath, you turn like a switch, and you get ass raped by the jets, man. <laughs> I mean, what kind of life is that? It's about to make you soft, isn't it? Right. Yeah, and so, no, we aren't doing, or, you know, other people aren't doing what is possible in the Himalayas. Those, some of those faces are three and a half thousand meters high. Sure. They just make you cross your legs when you see them. They just make you cringe, man. They make you cringe. There's walker spurs in the middle of like huge ice faces, you know, multiple, you know. Sure. In the middle, yeah. Yeah, in the middle. There's 5.11 climbing up cracks, 5.13 climbing up cracks, then mix seven and eight. You know, we haven't really done any of that. For a while. People aren't doing it, you know. But, you know, the the skills are there. Sure. The girls and boys are fit, they're strong, but Mm -hmm. the gear's great. But we aren't. We're not up to the task. You know, there certainly are people that are, are going to these places, maybe a little less media hype around them, but every year there's things getting done. But I see what you mean by there's not like this this sort of mass movement towards these highly skilled routes. But, you know, you just said something about uh, these friends of yours, you know, in the 70s and 80s, just all these storied expeditions, but so many of these guys perished. Yeah, they're dead, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, is that an influence? Like... People just... It shouldn't be. I mean, there's too many people on the planet, right? Right. So it's like sacrifices on the altar of like climbing. Mm -hmm. Let's do something instead of like running around like lunatics chasing the dollar. Right, right, right. And it's very pretty, the Mm -hmm. Himalayas. If you haven't been to the Himalayas, you know, it's like one of those things like dancing and stuff. You know, you've got to dance, you've got to have fun, you've got to see the Himalayas, you know. You've got to go snowboarding in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. you haven't lived you know until you've done a few of these things right you know if I hadn't snowboarded like mountains in the Himalayas I don't know what was what would my life be worth if I hadn't done that right I'd just be rubbish wouldn't I you know wear a suit be like in some office you know right now and like dreaming about snow charging down some mountain in the Himalayas mm-hmm. you know it's just nice standing on the summit it's great you know if i was young again i'd definitely just yeah i just probably thinking about it you know hindsight i just would have like taken two or three snowboards to the himalayas and never gone back just would have stayed then you know one day you kind of disappear sure but that guy used that used to snowboard everything in the himalayas no one's seen him for a while yeah that, you know that old guy that weird guy that yeah that horrible guy <laughs> Yeah, he loved his snowboards more than he loved people. You know that guy? Yeah. yeah. 
But he always had a smile on his face. Yeah. You know, that guy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, that guy. Well, look, I mean, in all honesty, and you've written a guidebook and you've brought brought people to your, your climbing area, but frankly, you know, going and living on a island in Malta that's 10 miles across, I mean, you're getting close to that. Like, that's kind of a... You're that guy. I'm almost that guy. Yeah, <laughs> thinking about it, you know, I clean roots oh, by the... myself, you know, on these weird cliffs, and then I go free diving. You know, mm-hmm. there's no one. It's good free diving because there's no other bugger there, and you can't yeah. hear them anyway. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't written a guidebook, that's what blew it. Yeah, because now everybody's gonna know. But you know, you'd have just been the guy with the rabbits, like yeah. that dude that climbs in Malta with the rabbits. You yeah. remember him? Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen him for a while. <laughs> I think he might. I think he might have he fallen. Just disappeared. Yeah, he just fell down the crack with the cell phone. It's fish bait, man. Yeah, it's totally. Fish bait. <laughs> all right, Stevie. Thanks a lot for sitting down. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure to meet you after all these years. Um, we didn't get to the desert stuff, but oh yeah, the desert. Yeah, another time. Just say I love the desert. Yeah. One of the best places in the world, yeah? Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. For sure. All right, thanks a lot, Stephen. Thank you, mate. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks to Stevie Hassan for sitting down. I definitely hit him up out of the blue. Never heard of the thing, but he was very nice to sit down. He's misunderstood. Sweet guy. Had a nice conversation with him. Hopefully he'll come back to the States soon and climb in his beloved desert. Love to hook up with him. All right, folks, if you want to help out with the EnormaCast, you know you can go to EnormaCast.com, click on the Help Out tab, Bunch of stuff you can do there to help the podcast, including donate if you wish, if you see value in this. Kick down a little bit of money, helps me out, along with the sponsors, support those guys as well. And as I've been hanging out in Spain, I've seen a bunch of sketchy shit here, as you will, at international climbing destinations with climbers of all stripe. Three really dumb ways that you can get killed or hurt sport climbing. One, getting lowered off the end of your rope which is an issue here in Spain. There's some big pitches here. You don't have a 70. You don't have an 80, and you're on the wrong pitch. You can easily drop your partner 20, 30 feet, and that can kill them and at least break a bunch of their bones. So tie a knot in the end of your rope. Tie it to the rope bag. And no, just keeping an eye on it isn't going to work. Everybody I've ever talked to that's had this happen says it happens too fast. Number two, make sure you understand that your partner knows to lower you from those chains and to not take you off belay. That's how we do sport climbing. We lower each other. We get lowered off. You do not repel in sport climbing. It just doesn't happen. That's in your bag of tricks. Stop doing it. Much safer to be lowered. And those anchors are there to take it. And finally, of course, the dumbest way to die sport climbing or climbing in general is to have your knot come undone. So please check your knot. Just say something. If you do this every day for the rest of your climbing career, eventually you're going to catch somebody's knot undone, and then they will owe you their life, which, of course, you can take advantage of. So, folks, get out there, have some fun, be safe, and check your knot. We'll see you next time.
Can I raise a practical question at this point? Yeah. Are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow? No, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge. 